tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to On Trial, starring Mark Radlich, also starring John Comer. Hope you're ready, Hollywood, because you're On Trial. Ladies and gentlemen, court is in session here on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. After a brief delay uh, for a variety of personal and medical and nonsensical and whimsical issues, we are back. And as we were supposed to do last week, we are putting the original 2002 motion picture based on a video game, based on the zombie theme, based in science fiction, based in a lot of nonsense, Resident Evil on trial. Directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, starring Malila Jolovich and Vasquez from Alien. I mean, Michelle Rodriguez. There was a whole conversation that, never mind. Let me bring on my co-host. Ladies and gentlemen, sitting in the prosecution's chair tonight, the uh, Jean LaRoquette to my mocky post for the evening, Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do, sir? Miles Edgeworth for the defense, and bye. <laughs> What's going on? Not much, man. Not much. Good to have you back. It's good to be back. Good to be able to breathe. It, you never know how much you miss your lungs until they're gone. And then suddenly you realize, <laughs> oh, I've really depended on these. I mean, not like, you know, wimpy, like, you know, I'm codependent kind of a thing. But, like, you know, I couldn't live without my lungs. It was a really weird thing. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I would say I don't think I've ever really had a medical emergency that was that bad. I think the, I think the closest I've ever come was – uh, the few little problems I had with my gallbladder uh, back in 2014, and even then, mm-hmm. that that was never that was never life threatening. Uh, I, I was never in mortal peril by that. Uh, <laughs> I was in immense crippling discomfort, and uh, sure. during my during my two emergency room visits, I discovered the pleasures of morphine. <laughs> as well as that, apparently, when I get good and thoroughly loopy, number one. I sing Frank Turner songs, badly, I imagine. <laughs> and number two, uh, the first time around, I declared I am a mighty morphine power ranger. El hallucinogens are fun. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs> hallucinogens, nothing. I'm the one this morning who, uh, and my friends who, who I know on Facebook will 
will notice my status from earlier, whose first train of thought this morning was Shinsuke Nakamura's last name is really fun is really fun to say repeatedly. <laughs> Nakamura, 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 Nakamura. And you know what? If you were a porn star, he called himself Shinsuke Nakabuta. And if you were a pothead, would he be Shinsuke Smokadabuta? And then thinking I had it out of my system, I went to Starbucks and got breakfast. And as I that ordered like in my head, in my head, I started giggling to myself and <laughs> Shinsuke Bacon Gouda. <laughs> See, I, I can sympathize. I sympathize and I empathize because last night on the Metal Hammer of Doom, we had a very lengthy discussion about uh, a particular lyric from an Overkill song that we had just reviewed. And I'm not going to... I, I want to get to the topic at hand, so I'm not going to get into a whole thing about this. Just go back and listen to last night's review of Overkill, The Grinding Wheel. But the line is, someone left my cat out in the rain, which prompted at least a 20-minute impromptu routine about Glenn, I believe it's Glenn Phillips's MacArthur Parks, in which case he utters the line, someone left my cake out in the rain. And and, and we, I wouldn't let this go. And now all day today... <laughs> As I've talked about many times before, as I'm tooling around the jail with my, with my lungs fully intact and able to more, walk more than three steps without having an asthma attack, it was a good day, Ice Cube said. I, I just kept saying to myself, someone left my cat out in the rain. And, you know, deputies are just like, you have a cat? And I'm just like, shut the fuck up. Listen to me. I'm just saying someone left my cat out in the rain. Don't worry about actual pets. All right. That's enough of that nonsense. <laughs> We are here to talk Resident Evil, ladies and gentlemen. We're putting it on trial. Sean's going to prosecute. I'm going to defend. Uh, the movie came out, as I said, in 2002. Um, we're going to hit this hard and heavy tonight. Uh, we're going to be in and out like a flash. Uh, but, you know, where would this podcast be without notes and a plot summary? So, Sean, got any notes for me, babe? Thank you, Your Eminence. I do. So... The quick and dirty of this, since Resident Evil has quite the complicated little legacy, is the fact that the entire franchise is based loosely, and by loosely I mean the movies have about as much to do with the video games as my penis has to do with the Honda Civic, on <laughs> a very famous, quite literally genre-defining video game that came out in 1990. 96, uh, called Biohazard in Japan, renamed Resident Evil in North America. There's also a whole story behind that, and at the end of the show, I will plug a great resource for learning more about that. And, yeah, it was a rip-roaring success. It created the video game genre that we know today as survival horror, based on the whole idea that you're not supposed to fight everything in your path because resources are goddamn scarce, the enemies are damn nasty, and for the most part, you can't take everything out in just one shot. Uh, keep that in mind when you're thinking about this movie as Mark and I are about to describe it, by the way. And it went on to spawn a number of sequels, a number of very successful sequels, such to the point that by the early 2000s, Sony had decided, you know what? 
this would make a great movie. And you know what, Sony? You're goddamn right. It should have made a great movie. Much like Assassin's Creed should have made a great movie. But what ended up happening at the at the time is, oddly enough, right around right around when this movie was being made, the director of the original Resident Evil game, Shinji Mikami, decided to partner with Nintendo to make a full modernized remake of the original with improved graphics, better voice acting, redone script, redone gameplay, pretty much just about down remake. It was fucking impeccable. Still stands up as one of the greatest games ever made. Right around the same time, Sony decided to hand their Hallmark PlayStation franchise and one of the tentpoles of Capcom over to the guy who made Mortal Kombat. And what we got is something that... It's pretty much Resident Evil in name only. It does not involve a single solitary character from the from the games. Not one. Not unless you count uh, two major enemies and zombies. That's about it. Uh, it does involve a mansion. A mansion that's set in a place called the Arclay Mountains. That is just outside of a metropolis called Raccoon City. Uh, it does involve the Umbrella Corporation. And <laughs> It has parts that are obviously supposed to be stylistic homages to the first three games. Otherwise, that's about fucking it. Uh, it it pretty much proceeded just about exactly as they as they intended it. Although, if I may backtrack, it does bear mo- bear noting that uh, we almost got a Resident Evil film made by no less than George fucking A. fucking Romero. Uh, in 1999, he had signed on, signed on uh, as the director and screenwriter of what was to be a full-fledged adaptation. That uh, he came to be involved with it in part because he directed an ad campaign in Japan for Biohazard 2 that just went over like gangbusters. And he studied it closely, really took everything to heart. Uh, What he read had the original characters of of Chris Redfield and Jill Valentine as the leads. Uh, I would have employed Barry Burton, Rebecca Chambers, Ada Wong, Albert Wesker. It would have been extremely true to it. Even the ending would have been similar to... The uh, the best possible ending you can get in the original script. And what happened was his script got rejected. That's right. You have The Godfather of of all zombie movies. Uh, the uh, the man who started who started this gangster shit and this is and this is the fucking thanks he get. Uh, <laughs> he writes something <laughs> that is it sounds it sounds of it just like it was a love letter to the franchise, and they said Resident Evil movie that looks like Resident Evil. That sucks. Who's gonna watch that? 
Uh, and as he put it, he was quoted in an interview with DGA Magazine saying, I don't think they were into the spirit of the video game and wanted to make it more of a war movie, something heavier than I thought it should be. <laughs> uh, you never played Resident Evil 6, did you, George? Um, <laughs> uh, so I so I think they just never liked, never liked my script. And so instead, they handed over to Paul W.S. Anderson, which on paper is a good move because, as I've said many, many times, Mortal Kombat is arguably the best video game adaptation, the best movie adaptation of a video game ever made, period. Unironically, not even in a so bad it's good kind of way. And actually, it's, it's in a, it's, just generally, objectively, pretty damn good kind of way, and also, holy shit, it actually looks like what we always dreamed a Mortal Kombat movie would look like. As far as casting went, that was pretty much straightforward right from the start. The main leads of Michelle Rodriguez, James Purefoy, Mila Jovovich, uh, those were the first of the cast to be signed on. The only semi-major-ish change is the fact that instead of Eric Mabius, who was later cast in March 2001, initially they were all set to bring David Boreanaz on board, on board, on board, on board to play the role of rookie male cop Matt Addison. And instead, he ended up turning that down so that he could continue working on Angel on the WB. And so, yeah, that's a, that's about most of it. Otherwise, uh, it was the only other thing that's really of note is the fact that, number one, I love the score of this movie. It, it has absolutely, again, no similarity whatsoever to the atmospheric, kind of quiet, unsettling music of the better moments in the games. Um, but for what it is for being scored by a combination of Marilyn Manson and Marco Beltrami, it's actually really, really good. <laughs> I I really enjoy enjoy it immensely. It's a heavy electronic. There's a single by was yeah it was Slipknot that plays over the credits, which isn't bad as Slipknot goes. I love it. And yeah, you would. Um <laughs> uh the original plot was supposed to involve uh Mila's character Alice and Michelle Rodriguez's very action movie cliché character of Raid. <laughs> uh, leading a commando team to prevent the T virus outbreak from spreading from the mansion and the hive in the Arclay Mountains to the outside world. They added the bullshit, again, not remotely having, barely having anything to do, I should say, the video games element of the Red Queen, uh, because for some reason they wanted to include an homage to HAL 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey. And there's <laughs> a scene in the movie that directly rips off a much better suspense horror movie called Cube. 
which I highly recommend you all go and watch because I really enjoy the absolute ever-loving hell out of it. Uh, bunch of fucking Capcom executives got cameos as as zombies, as did producer Jeremy Bolt. And yeah, as as much as as much as I'm complaining, oddly enough, it's mostly because I even I would have rather seen a, a just a full out proper. Resident Evil movie. I've hoped for years that somebody would come around and take, say, Resident Evil 4 and just make a live-action version of that. Because I love Resident Evil 4. And yet, I still enjoy it. I like this movie. I like it a lot. I think it's extremely well shot. I think it's got a lot of great action. Uh It's just that (laughs) I hate that it was called Resident Evil. It's kind of like how, if any of you have ever seen Rob Zombie's Halloween, for the most part, up until about the last eh, third, fourth of it or so, it's actually a pretty good slasher movie. So much so that the very first time I saw it, uh, I got up to a certain point about halfway through, and I went, man, maybe I was wrong. This is actually okay. Where, where's the part where it's really going to start to suck? And about the time, not too long after Michael breaks out of the asylum, I went, ah, there we go. Now we've got all Rob zombied up. So, that's really about about it, except for the fact to note that it was obviously a gargantuan financial success. It was made on a shockingly paltry $35 million budget, and yet, <laughs> and God, I can't believe this, it almost tripled its budget, making $102.4 million at the box office. And it has since spawned a series of sequels that, or the reviews have gotten worse with just about each and every single one of them, but also almost each and every one has somehow managed to take in more money than the last. (laughs) It's, if that that sounds familiar, yeah, it's the same mind-boggling popularity as... Uh, the Transformers franchise. So, but again, let me just get this out of the way now because there are people out there who are only familiar with this from the movies. If you decide you want to play, you want to play the games. My suggestion: play the 2002 remake. Track down either the original or one of the ports of Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 3 Nemesis. If you're only going to play one game play Resident Evil 4, any version of it. Play it on the GameCube, uh, download it from the PlayStation Store, play it on PC, doesn't matter. It is a bona fide classic. Dip a toe in Resident Evil 5, see what you think. Uh, I don't think it gets the credit it deserves sometimes. Before you play Resident Evil 6, look yourself in the eye in the mirror and ask yourself one question. How much do I hate myself today? (laughs) 
<laughs> and then from everything I've heard, and I've tried not to hear too much because I plan on playing it myself. I don't want spoilers. Uh, Resident Evil 7 sounds like a bona fide renaissance. So I would even say go ahead and check that one out. But uh, otherwise, are, uh, are we ready to commence opening arguments, my, uh, my defensive counterpart? We are. Let's just do, let me do a quick 50 words or less plot synopsis. Um, and I really do mean 50 words or less. Uh, I'm just going to hit the big points with this. We open with uh, a, uh, someone who steals a genetically engineered T-virus T and contaminates the underground building called The Hive with it, which is pretty much where the whole movie takes place. Uh, in response, the artificial intelligence comes on and kills everybody in gruesome fashion uh, inside The Hive. We cut to Alice waking up, who is Mila Jovovich. Uh, she wakes up in a bathroom. Uh, she's naked in the tub. She has amnesia. Uh, she's shortly thereafter joined by uh, Matt uh, Addison, who's a police officer. And then they are joined by the rest of the characters that you'll see in the movie, which are a bunch of Umbrella Corporation commandos. Um, there's a lot of mystery in the beginning, a lot of just go this way, go that way, not a lot of explanation. They get on a train, train takes them from the mansion into the hive. Slowly but surely, they start to explain what the deal is. They explain about the T-virus, they explain about the Red Queen, they explain who Alice is. Alice is supposed to be a security operative that works in the, uh, that guards one of the entrances that starts at this mansion that we found her at. Um, the mission here is to contain the outbreak and cut power to the, to the Red Queen, which they do, and in doing so, uh, the doors fly open and out come the zombies. Um, the rest of the movie is running from the zombies, uh, who you know, each, you know, eventually almost everyone gets bitten and killed. Um, Alice starts to regain her memories over the course of the movie. Turns out she was helping... Uh, the cop is actually somebody who is a resistance uh, fighter to the Umbrella Corporation. His sister was a plant inside the Umbrella Corporation. They were trying to get the T-virus to expose them. Alice was trying to help them do that. Um, and, and like I said, the rest of it is just moving, moving, moving through the movie uh, as more and more people die. And, and eventually Alice and uh, Addison are uh, found by uh, Umbrella Corporation scientists. Addison goes into the, quote-unquote, the nemesis program, and Alice is knocked out cold. Um, Alice wakes up again. Uh, this time she be na she is still naked, only wearing paper towels for some odd reason. Um, she uh, gets her way out of this abandoned lab. She makes her way to the outside where she, found, she, she finds that the whole world has gone kaflooey. Uh, <laughs> everything's been abandoned. There's uh, fires happening. She grabs a shotgun. We pan out, and that's the end of the movie. Um, it really is that simple. There's, there's some degree of detail in here. There's a thing called the liquor. You want to know about the liquor, you go find out about the liquor. Maybe Sean will tell you about the liquor. I don't want to know more about it. I don't even want to say the word liquor anymore. Liquor in the front, poker in the back. I'm done with it all. All right. So with that being said, uh, may, we see, may we hear from the prosecution? Your witness, sir. Oh, God. This movie. Where do I begin? 
as I said, arguably this movie's greatest crime would be felony identity theft. And quite, and quite frankly, a really piss-poor job of it. It's hard to even call it an imitation of Resident Evil. If you're going to brand a movie with a video game title, certain things are going to be expected by its audience. And you don't really get to turn around and say, well, we're not making this just for the fans. No. <laughs> no, don't piss on our heads and tell us it's raining you wouldn't have bothered branding it as such if you didn't mean to capitalize on its built-in fan base. And in this case, I'll say this. Paul W.S. Anderson, I give you the credit of, it, of my at least saying you knew better because you did it right once and before. Once before. New Line. In fact, you know, Mortal Kombat was pretty much just about a love letter to the first two games in that franchise. Because everything was spot on. The character design, the signature moves, the plot points, the voiceovers, the lines. And that's what made it so damn much fun. It was in the spirit of the games. It's hard to really even call this in the spirit of Resident Evil. Because the first Resident Evil game was... Tense. It was quiet. It was atmospheric. A lot of the fun of it was in the fact that it was strictly controlled by the direction and the idea that with fixed cameras and tank controls, you couldn't move around and really see that much more than what was given to you on the screen. And it really helped control the scares. It kept you constantly on the edge of your seat. And it made the game scary, despite the fact that, let's face it, it had horrendous dialogue, notoriously, hysterically, I can't believe they actually went with those takes, bad voice acting. Some, several plot elements that, yeah, I'll admit, strain credulity. And yet, it still managed to be a scary experience. It's still reinvented horror in video games. It was true survival horror. That's not what this is. There isn't that tension. You don't really get that many moments when there isn't a problem that that everybody can just either shoot or magically matrix foo their way out of. I mean, you get a few scenes of of that kind of jeopardy but not really enough to satisfy that Resident Evil mystique. It's also terribly noisy. It's loud. It's constantly in your face. There aren't that many moments where you do get to build all that much tension. And part of it's also in the fact that you're also constantly trying to figure out what the hell is going on with the plot. I mean... The entire concept of the story is, well, let's face it, it's soap opera. Bad. We have not one, not two characters with amnesia. Actually, scratch that. Let's backtrack. Let's backtrack to the fact that, as opposed to the games wherein stars, which 
is Special Tactics and Rescue Service is a branch of the Raccoon City Police Department that stumbles upon this conspiracy unwittingly, you have a bunch of commandos who are in league with Umbrella, who already know what's going what's going on and essentially more or less what they're getting into. There's very little element of the unknown going on here. At least not enough to really make it all make it all that scary or to be able to look at it and say, Oh man, they they had no idea. They they, they don't know what they're about to walk into. No, throughout most of the movie, they actually seem to have a pretty damn good idea just exactly what they're walking into. And it it makes for a decent action movie, but a really shitty horror movie and a terrible Resident Evil movie. But beyond that, in addition to that, you've got the fact that you've got to deal with the meandering plots of two of these people having amnesia. Oh, and uh, both the people who have amnesia are apparently double agents of some kind. One who's working to steal the T-virus for profit and another one who's working for the Umbrella Corporation, but then she secretly partnered with somebody else to try to bring Umbrella Corporation down from the inside, but then she gets naked gassed at in the wakes up in the shower and oh no I don't remember what's going on and somehow her lack of memory uh, also erases the muscle memory for the most part of knowing that she's an incredible kick-ass martial arts master uh, who would as I believe we learn later in the game has basically been genetically engineered with superpowers. That's a thing. <laughs> and then you've got uh, you've got the, the cop played by Eric Mabius, who's with them the entire time. And you know, <laughs> for fuck's sake, if you're going to have a Raccoon City police character. That was your chance right there to, if you'd wanted to, maybe insert a character from the game if you'd wanted to really play that fast and loose with it. Uh, you could have you, you thrown Carlos in there. You could have made that Leon S. Kennedy if you had wanted to. Something else so that we could identify this as a Resident Evil game except for uh, Mutant Dogs, mansion, zombies, and the liquor. And, you know, I will pay the liquor its due. The liquor was actually quite well done, both as an effect and a monster. Essentially, the liquor is what we get when our uh, greedy saboteur, played by James Purefoy, uh, directly injects himself and is, or I should say, becomes direct. Or, no. I stand corrected. See, even I'm getting confused, and I've seen this a few hundred damn times. Uh, he gets, he is actually assaulted by liquor, which is the result of somebody at some point having been infected with 
pretty much a direct straight shot of the TV virus in about as pure a form as possible. You've got the whole deal where underneath the underneath the the uh, spent, well what is supposed to be the Spencer Mansion in the mountains, you've got this super secret engineering facility, and it's being controlled by this mega intel intelligent AI, which is supposed to be a uh, a throwback kind of a nod to a, another feature. Another feature of the games, uh, Ashford, I think it, I think it is. Um, I'm trying to look up, look up the name. I'll, I'll get to it. I'll get to it in a minute. Um, and she's trying to manipulate everything to make sure that nobody who comes in and is infected can get out, out alive. So they're having to deal with her at the same with her at the very same time. It's... When your plot is bizarre by Resident Evil standards, you have <laughs> painted the bed brown. That that should almost not be possible because it, it does have a really strange and... The, the whole series has got a strange and bizarre, and bizarre history to it. Uh, and again, it, it's all unnecessary. It's a fun movie. Even I am willing to admit to admit that I enjoyed it. But it also feels like far too much bait and switch. Way, way too much um, to possibly be justified. And the sad thing is the sequel doesn't get much better. The sequel tries to essentially make Resident Evil 2 the movie, as in make a movie of the game Resident Evil 2, but even then, that somehow managed, managed to go off the rails. So all I can say is it's a nice-looking movie. It's a decent effort. Mila Jovovich does an admirable job with how physical she's willing to get to get with the role and ultimately ends up being a, a bright spot in the in the movie and to give her a modicum of credit but in the end it just there's very little except for except for a few seemingly token perfunctory nods that gives us any ties to the franchise that's trying to sell an association with. Your witness, sir. Thank you. If it pleases the court, the prosecution would have you believe that just because this movie called Resident Evil, based on a game called Resident Evil, should resemble source material <laughs> named Resident Evil, and I declare unto you that that is unfair, that that is prejudiced, that that is racist, and that we will not have it in this courtroom. I say unto thee that a movie should stand by its own merits. I say unto thee that a movie should be a matter of its craft, its performances, the way that it's shot, the way that it's lit. There are treasures 
in this basket of nonsense that are truly enjoyable. And just because it happens to share the name of a video game doesn't make it any less wonderful. And I will share those little Easter eggs of joy with you right now, if it pleases the court. I promise I will not do that voice this entire show. All right. Um, Let's start with the beginning and work our way to the end. And when we get there, I will stop. The opening sequence is legitimately horrifying. Okay, the the building coming to life, basically, and trying to kill everybody. You know, it chops the head off a woman in an elevator, which the whole buildup to that, I mean, listen, I know I'm a tad squeamish. But I st- but I would declare unto thee that if you're hanging a half ass out of an elevator and suddenly it drops and then it goes up like oh so much carnival fare, you would shit pants. And that's it. Okay. I may not have had air in my lungs, but I had poop in my tushy and I shit my pants. It was that horrifying. The look on that poor woman's face. Get me out of here. You gotta move me. There is some intensity. In that little bit of screen time that sets the tone for the rest of this movie, it's legitimately scary. That whole, you know, the, the people running around and being gassed and there's just all, there's all kinds of death happening. The movie just erupts into this cacophony of violence, just awful, terrible violence. And I think... From a cinematic standpoint, divorced from all other things, this was visually appealing for the type of movie that we're watching, which is horror slash action slash science fiction. So I think there's a lot to be said for that opening sequence that leads to the mansion. Now, the next thing. If you, I have said often. Now, now again, I'm not the horror guy. That's that's Winfrey. That's Sean. There are there are experts in the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network family that can more intelligently speak to the genre of horror than I can. But even I can tell you that the best horrors are laden with mystery. It's the ones that keep you guessing. You know, jump scares, gags and slasher sequences are nice, but they're too big. They're nice, but what you really want is a gripping tale that keeps you guessing and wondering, you know, you know who's going to turn up at the end of the Scooby-Doo mystery inside the costume, okay? That's what you want to know. You, you want there to be a tale to be told. You want there to be a mystery. And because you have a character who with amnesia, uh, who is Alice, there is sufficient mystery at the onset to keep you interested as a viewer. It's not just wait for the, wait for the slash, wait for the gag, wait for the kill. There, you know, you are, why is she in, why is she naked? Why did the building attack all the people, all those lovely, lovely people? Why, uh, why is she in a mansion now? Why did the commandos come a swinging and dingy into the windows and cracking things up? Why is Walter from Arrow shaking her like an abusive husband and yelling, report woman? 
you know, these are all questions that need answers. And so as somebody who is just watching this from a passive cinema file point of view, I'm invested in what's happening here because admittedly, and I'm going to go against my own case here a little bit, but to, to draw a further point that when there was a story to be told and a mystery that needed unpacking, I was invested and interested in what was going to happen next. When this thing devolved into a series of action sequences, meh, I wasn't as invested. So at least in the first act of this movie, there's a lot of solid storytelling happening to keep the viewer invested. Um, We talked about this with Big Trouble in Little China. This was actually a very good example of good and timely use of expository dialogue that explains what the hive is, how we got to be where we are. As I said during Big Trouble in Little China, what you don't want is, in a visual medium, is just a guy standing in front of the camera, static, spewing exposition at you. You have to, in a visual medium, you have to keep it uh, stimulating. So there's, there's a frenetic pace that's happening. <laughs> there's, a, there's a frenetic pace that's happening as they're telling you about the hive, about the T-virus, about Alice. They break it up into bits and pieces, sprinkle it over the first act, and make, uh, and make the visuals interesting while it's happening. So people are talking and playing with the computer. People are talking and checking corners. Uh, there's interactions between Walter from Arrow and uh, Mila Jovovich. All right? So I thought that Paul W.S. Anderson and the, uh, the screenwriters really did a good job of, of – capturing the exposition in a way that keeps the viewer interested. And speaking of Walter from Arrow, um, him and uh, Mila Jovovich actually have some very good early interactions. Once you get past him smacking her around in the, in the you know, mansion, yelling, report, for some odd reason. But after that, uh, when they finally get to the hive and he's, and he's backed off a bit and, you know, acting less commando and a little bit more human being from Earth. There's some chemistry there. I'm not saying they're going to go on a hot date at the end of this, but, I mean, there's, there was some on-screen chemistry between that character and Mila Jovovich. I liked their interactions. They were interesting. So good job to the performers there for portraying all of that. Um. This is mostly a zombie survival horror movie. So a lot of the action revolves around a lot of the same horror tropes, including but not limited to the bit where someone opens the door, says, oh, boy, we can go through. Ah, zombies! And then they make a ham sandwich out of it. You see it in all, in, in, in all the zombie horror movies. They even did it in Shaun of the Dead, and it was gross and awesome, but they did it. Um, so... It was nice to see in the laser defense sequence something completely unrelated to horror zombie tropes. If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, if you'll remember from the movie, there's a bit where they're trapped in a hallway and these lasers are coming at them and they've got to jump and they've got to duck and, you know, and, and it's built. 
if you think about it, all right, for, for those of you playing the Rattlers and Broadcasting Network home drinking game, get your shot glasses ready. I'm about to make a wrestling reference. So if you think about how matches are built, right, you do a thing here, and then you build there, and then you turn it around, and then there's a reversal, and you build and you build, and, you know, you, you have a nice base, and you build, and then finally you get to your climactic action, and boom, you finish, take it home, voila, lobster, right? Well, this sequence was built very much the same way. There's a base terror. We're trapped in a confined area. Lasers are coming at you. And it starts off less harmful, then builds, then builds, and finally almost everyone but Walter is dead, and it turns into a patchwork quilt of death. And I, and I have to say, like, they could have gone really gross with that. They stopped shy of being really gross and just made it, awful and deadly and pretty cool to look at. I enjoyed the lasers going through them and having that moment of, ooh, did they survive? Nope. His face just split off. That was fun to watch. I, I genuinely enjoyed the laser sequence. Uh, um, if I may interject just a moment, um, sure. breaking character for just a second, as much as, like I, like I said, the, the, the grid part that finally, that finally slices up Colin Salmon, uh, that that was taken, and the, the direct and on the commentary, I think uh, either Jeremy Bolt or Paul W. S. Anderson or both uh, admitted that that was a direct riff from riff from the movie Cube. As much as Cube, I think, was the better overall movie, that sequence, as were a lot of other ones, were really monumentally well done. So I just want to point out. My criticism is just of the movie as a whole. There are obviously parts that I enjoyed immensely and that I still kind of sit forward a little bit when I when I got to watch them. And that part was so effective that for a little bit of gamer trivia for you, those of you who have played Resident Evil 4 know that it was adapted pretty blatantly to one portion of it for a quick time event to really great effect. So, yeah, just just want to throw that up, throw that out there because I couldn't hold it in anymore. Uh, I'm absolutely in love with that sequence because it was it was shot, storyboarded, and performed just just damn perfectly. So good. It's it's one of the high points of the movie. Um, yes. Now. Now, from a from a plot point of view, when as as, as I said earlier, this plot can be summed up in fifty words or less, and I'm pretty sure I don't even I didn't even hit fifty because it's pretty much once they've shut down the Red Queen and all the doors fly open and out come the wolves and the zombies and the nonsense. That's the movie. It's it's at that point it's more or less over. It's just run 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 Scooby Doo. Um, but I but getting there and setting up the situation. Look, there's a lot of ways they could have done it. I actually thought the idea of, hey, we have a homicidal AI that's killing everyone in this building. We have to shut it down. And unbeknownst to our characters, shutting it down is what's going to let the zombies out, but they don't know that. I actually thought that was brilliant. You know, if, if, you're, if you're trying to get the kids to the mall, as they say, and in this case, it's get to the zombies, and you have to find an effective way to do that, without it just being, well, we got to the right level, and out came the zombies, you know? Instead of just being lazy about it, I'm going to give credit where credit's due. Setting up this long 
somewhat drawn out uh, setup to where they have to shut down the uh, the AI, but that has the effect of opening up all the doors. I actually thought it was a really really good way of handling getting to the second act. Uh, so well done there. And that first zombie sequence is very effective. I mean, you don't walk into a zombie horror film and expect to get Fifty Shades of Grey. If you do, you're on drugs. Um, you know, you're expecting, there is a certain expectation. Um, so, and you get it with that first zombie sequence. You, you really get, I think, everything that you're looking for in a movie like this in that first elongated sequence where they discover there be zombies about. And lastly, and here's where my argument will rest, uh, there's a lot of fun, stylized action in this movie. Very, very visually stimulating. And I think the best example of that and the sort of, you know, hooray uh, for the hero moment, that stand up and fight, that Wonder Woman from Batman v Superman moment is the dog sequence. When Mila Jovovich suddenly remembers that she's a ninja from the League of Assassins and uh, and starts kicking zombie dogs across the hall and putting bullets in their dome pieces, that's great. I mean, look, we all love The Matrix. We all love a lot of these movies that have stylized action in them. That's a great piece of stylized action right there, my friends. That's a steak tartare if I've ever seen one. So... I know what I have presented is a list of individualized points, but it's individualized points that make a wonderful whole, ladies and gentlemen. An Easter basket has a lot of useless grass in it that you're just going to tear aside, but you still love the Easter basket because of the little Easter eggs that are in them. And I just gave you a basket full of Easter eggs, baby. The defense rests. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned Easter eggs because really, as far as connections to Resident Evil, that's all that this movie has to offer is just nothing but Easter eggs. It's a stylized story that takes place in a very rough facsimile of about the same world as the games. (laughs) Otherwise, it barely delivers what it promises. In fact, I would even go so far as to say as despite the fact that the sequels are diminishing returns the whole way through, even those gradually have more to do with the game than the first movie did. You have the dogs from the first Resident Evil. You have the liquor from, I believe it's either Resident Evil 2 or Resident Evil Nemesis, one or the other. You have a reference to the Nemesis program, which we will see coming to fruition in uh, in the sequel. Resident Evil, they give these things such stupid generic damn titles. Uh, Retribution of the Revengeance Apocalypse reloaded the fuck ever. Um, uh, you have the, the train, the fact that it's called the Alexi 5000, that's a reference to uh, Code Veronica's bill on Alexi, Alexia Ashford. Um, you've got the STARS logo 
on the police cruiser from which Alice takes up takes out the shotgun at the end. Uh, Jason Isaacs showing up as the uncredited masked surgeon during the brief little in and out of consciousness flashes. At the end of the movie, is supposed to be a reference to villain William Birkin. And so on and so forth. And otherwise, that's really about it. It lacks everything that made so many of the early games so very enjoyable. There really isn't all that much that maintains maintains the tension, although the stylized elements and a lot of shots and a lot of scares are fairly creative and well executed. I'll take you back to something that to something that I said on Damn You Hollywood about a number of the better video game movies that have been made. Not all necessarily great, but at least the better ones, the bearable ones. Dead or Alive, it felt like Dead or Alive. It was harmless, dumb, gratuitous, sexy, stupid fun, which is what you would expect from something that's based on that particular franchise. Silent Hill, atmospheric, scary, spooky, grotesque, unsettling. It was tense. For the several different things it got wrong, credit where it's due, it at least got a lot of the characters, the monsters, and best of all, the atmosphere right. So much so that it actually ended up influencing the look and feel of several of the later games. I've beaten Mortal Kombat to death. Not really much left to say about that. And then you've got Resident Evil, which, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to and I'm going to harp on it a little more. Was made by somebody who made a faithful adaptation. It was made by somebody who knows how to make, how to adapt a video game to the screen and absolutely do it justice. He just chose not to. It's been noted that it breaks down into a lot of pointless action sequences. And really, that's the problem, is at times it feels like just another action movie when it has a chance to be the kind of zombie movie that we've never really seen before. I mean, when you really go back and think about most of the zombie movies that have been made since Night of the Living Dead... When you really break it down, Night of the Living Dead was just about the only one that limited itself to one setting that was really that small. I mean, you can make a little bit of an argument maybe for maybe for Dawn of the Dead taking place in a shopping mall. But as far as putting people together in one particular house, one really confined space like that, you had a chance to really ratchet things up and do a little bit more with tension, forcing the angle, making the actual scares better rather than worrying about making the action look good. I mean, if you want to make an action make an action movie, fine. Make an action movie. But don't take it and really sully the reputation of a great survival horror franchise like this. That was just unnecessary. It was 
completely uncalled for. The performances are good. I would admit that. Uh, there's some good cam, some good chemistry there, especially between Colin Salmon and Camila Jovovich. Michelle Rodriguez is. We love Bart. <laughs> it's, it, 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 let, let me ask you folks something have you seen Girl Fight have you seen Blue Crush any of the Fast and the Furious movies that won not even a full season when she was on Lost you've seen it okay you've seen that way you can watch Bead the Sweat form on her form on her forehead when you can tell she's really trying to do some serious actoring this time for really real, not for play-play guys? Yeah, that's Michelle Rodriguez. <laughs> you do not, you do not call her in when when you when you want Shakespeare. It's just not something you do. Um, when, when you want somebody who Somebody who just kind of growls every lot, every line, and who has about all the fa- all the facial range as far as expressions go. Um, Kristen Stewart, I think that's a fair <laughs> comparison. That's who you call on. Yeah, you call on Michelle Michelle Rodriguez. And then there's the plot. Oh dear God! What an unnecessarily ridiculous, complex plot. As you're watching this, the twists and turns just get more ridiculous as they go along. To the point where, by the end, by the time everything wraps up, we really are just going. Sure, why not? Because. Yeah, it, it starts off with a mystery that unfolds, and that's all well and good and everything. But then it turns turns to she had amnesia the entire time. Wait, he had amnesia too. She was a double agent, and he was a double, and he was a double agent, and his cop was a double agent. It's what it reminds me of is one of my all-time favorite uh, Calvin and Hobbes comic strips where they're trying to play, I believe it's either baseball or football. And every time one of them gets advantage, the other one comes up with some kind of ridiculous development, like, ha-ha, I was really secretly playing for the other team. Oh, yeah, I was secretly playing for the other for the other team, too. And eventually in the last panel, they're carrying the flag, they have the black masks on, and one of them, I forget whether it's Calvin or Hobbes, just turns to the reader and says, sooner or later, every sport we play turns into Calvin Ball. (laughs) This movie just eventually turns into Calvin Ball. It's it's a bunch of action sequences, but how scary can it ever really feel when right from the very beginning, you've got a bunch of commandos who just swing into this mansion, clearly loaded for bear for this, and they're not endangered so much, again, by the fact that they're taken by surprise as the fact that they're just 
moderately inept and didn't exactly think their plan all the way through. <laughs> That's what it comes down what it comes down to is and again, yeah, you're damn right I'm going to make comparisons to the game because if you're going to bear the title of it, well, that's what you get, and you don't really get to say shit about it. Objection. What's in a name? Was a rose by any of the names still uh, swell last week? In this case, when you're advertising that it's going to be a Resident Evil movie, and you're basically giving me commandos traipsing about a lab, None of that looks like a goddamn Resident Evil movie to me. Um, what you had in the games, especially in the especially in the first one, is you have the Stars Alpha team that ends up rushing into this into this mansion because they were chased there by chased there by the dogs while they were investigating the wreck the wreckage of the Stars Bravo team's chopper and they're just completely unprepared for what they find in there. They have to make it on their wits. None of them are exactly what you would call stupid. There are exactly moments where you're playing and one of the NPCs does something that would make you yell whatever the equivalent would be to, would be to no stupid white bitch, don't go up, don't go up the stairs, he's waiting for you, he's going to kill you. <laughs> there aren't any moments like moments like that. You're simply hopelessly outgunned and that's that. What you have here is you have them relatively having some idea of what's going of what's going on and then they just make a, a bunch of great big fat great big fat errors and just derp let the zombies loose. <laughs> That's what happens. It, yeah, in the game, they're caught completely off guard by the zombies. They don't. They don't know that. They don't know that there's anybody else in else in that mansion. Just that, as they're running around, they're finding the undead around just just about every corner. And then more that's unleashed. The deeper they look through the mansion, trying to figure out what's going on, or at least figure a way out. With this, it's not being caught by surprise. It's being caught. It's being caught by derp. I mean, so much so <laughs> that certain parts even become slightly predictable to the point where the only way out was, yeah, you had to concoct some really ridiculous plot twist. Like I said, like three double agents all on the same team. What are the odds? <laughs> uh, you you have to come up with something like oh you know it's it's not enough that we have zombies and monsters we have to deal with. Let's throw in a homicidal AI in itself, not a bad plot device. But when you throw it in on top of everybody else, look, it's one thing when Cabin in the Woods does it. When Cabin in the Woods does it, do construction, and it's amusing and it's supposed to be a little bit of taking the piss, biting the satire. In this, it just feels excessive. It's like you're, you're expecting at any moment, and then all of, and then all of a sudden, Dementors popped out and popped out in the hallway. <laughs> Yar! And then the dam um, broke. But it... <laughs> yeah, it, it, thank you. Yeah, the Scarlet Pumpernickel. That's what this starts to feel like. At, to feel like after a while. <laughs> 
And it's unfortunate because I said before that the greatest crime the movie commits is felony identity theft carried out in world's dumbest criminal fashion because it carries the name but looks like this is what, what, what this movie is this movie is an eight this movie is an 18 year old 115 pound five foot four blonde college cheerleader who tries to get in, who tries to get into a club using a fake ID previously owned by a six foot two hundred and fifty pound sixty five year old black woman in this case it totally wastes all those action sequences all those great looking great looking moments it's wasted and it's and it's dragged down by such a nonsensical, unnecessarily complicated plot. And that's it right right there, is the fact that you've got everything you need and you squandered it just simply because you lacked appreciation for the restraint of Shinji Mikami, the man who made, who made the original game. As a matter of fact... What you're doing is you're displaying all the action-based boom-bam-pow-kabooey-bombast of Hideki Kamiya, the director who ended up taking over the franchise, who really didn't know much about horror himself because, well, he was an action guy. So much so, in fact, that one of his ideas for a sequel, Capcom ultimately ended up turning into a completely different game because it had nothing to do with all the horror elements that had made it a success. We got Devil May Cry. And eventually, Kamiya split off and made another such great, fran- great franchise, Bayonetta. Now, those are great on their own, but would I dare go and try go and try to take what's supposed to be an atmospheric, dark, unsettling, threatening atmosphere of survival horror and then try to play it off with much of highfalutin, stylized, absolutely unreal, you've-got-to-be-kidding-me action? What do you think this is, a review of Resident Evil 6? Yeah. The prosecution rests. I, uh, the main thrust of my argument was, why do we have to call it Resident Evil? Why can't we just enjoy the zombie movie? So, uh, that's really all I've got. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, uh, and we'll conclude with this, it wasn't impossible to defend this movie. As I said, I found elements of it that I liked. But as a whole, it, it, I mean, there were so, as I said to you before the show started, there were things I was watching and then immediately my brain started to go and I had to stop myself from going, shit, I'm defending, I can't focus on the negative. But yeah, there were some real cockamamie sequences in this. And <clears throat> the performances, Michelle Rodriguez being of the highest order, but that backup cast of Commandos, all, they all seem to have gone to the, uh, you know, the the, the Waldorf School of uh, Acting and you know, uh, fucking fast food delivery because 
it was, I don't know. They, they, these were, these were not believable performances for the most part. You had Mila Jovovich, who was okay. You had Walter from uh, Arrow, and then Colin after Salmon, that, it just yeah. sort of goes downhill. But um, I think that's where we're going to leave it tonight. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed our uh, prosecution in defense of Resident Evil. We will be back next week. Now, we normally do these every other week, just, just the way the schedule worked out. Um, we're going to do a couple of these back-to-back. So next week, if you all thought that defending Resident Evil was going to be a tough task for this man, <laughs> wait till you see what I've got going on for our next show. I'm going wh- to just tell everyone right now, I'm going to whip out the same argument again, that just because it's called Catwoman doesn't mean it has to be about the actual DC character. <laughs> I'll just throw that out oh there right now. Oh, my God. That's, that's my opening argument for this movie without having seen any of it. Um, I mean, I've seen bits and pieces of it on cable, but I, I know what I'm getting into with Catwoman. I will be defending it. Sean will be prosecuting it, which he could show up <laughs> high and f- with a gun fucking wound in his foot and still defend this thing. I still can prosecute this thing pretty easily. Don't give me ideas. But I w- but I will find something salvageable about Catwoman. Well, my name isn't Mud, um, and it isn't. So with that said, uh, just a quick couple of plugs. I'll let Sean do his plug, and we'll get out of here for the night. Uh, as I said, Metal Hammer of Doom left its takeout in the rain. Uh, it was called Overkill, the Grinding Wheel, and we talked about that last night. Uh, the night before, Jesse and I talked Black Mirror Season 2. Uh, next Monday... Source material, Jesse and I will be talking Batman 66, Volume 1. I'll have Mark Roth on. He'll be, he's new to the Rattle and Broadcasting Network. Uh, he'll be on to discuss Chess Table. Um, and then another makeup show from the week that I was out, Metal Hammer of Doom, If He Dies Beneath the Waves, uh, which is my friend Frank Morofsky's band. He's a buddy of mine from high school. We were actually in a band together ourselves. Uh, so that'll be next Wednesday. And then finally, like I said, our next on trial, next week, same time, same bat channel, Catwoman. Meow, baby, meow. All right, those are my plugs. Sean, tell them about FPG News and whatever else you got going on, and let's get this puppy out of here. Okay, well, as always, as is my wont to do, thank you to everybody who downloads the show, who listens live, who passes along the word of our shows to friends, who links to us on Facebook. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Entertaining you all and informing you is the reason why all of us here in the Rodlitch and Broadcasting Network do what we do. However, it's not the only place where some of us do what we do. Uh, in my case, I also happen to be a regularly featured podcast and occasionally featured columnist over at a little site called fpgnews.com, uh, run by mine and Mark's good buddy and fellow 411mania.com alum, Mr. Stuart Lang, and a motley pack of pals of ours. You can find everything you could possibly want pop culture over there, movies, music, TV, professional wrestling, MMA, video games, lots of columns and podcasts every single week, new stuff posted every day uh, from news to insight. As for me personally, the next time I will be featured on the, on the site, I will be there the evening of March 5th. 
at 5 p.m. Mount, starting at uh, 5 p.m. Mountain Time, where <coughs> excuse me, where I will be bringing my column, the Comer Codex, live to the Bradley Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. No, not exactly live, but I will be providing segment-by-segment and match-by-match coverage of WWE Fastlane. If you can't watch the show on WWE Network, now only $9.99 per per month with your first month free, including WrestleMania. Uh, You can just go to the link that we provide on refreshing the page, and I will have results of every match as it concludes. Um, always gets a lot of traffic. Always a good, always a good time. I'm always thrilled to provide the most detailed coverage and recaps that I possibly can. I would certainly love to have you. I would love for us to get a comment section that's as lively as what our our good buddy, our good pal Tony Acero gets over on. Yes, wrestling and 411mania.com for his live raw coverage. Get in there, chat it up, give me something to look at occasionally between matches. So be sure and tune in for that. Uh, speaking of wrestling news, uh, our sincerest condolences to the family and loved ones of former, well, briefly anyway, WWE Attitude Era alum Nicole Bass, who has passed away at the age of 52. And Otherwise, uh, that's about it. I'm not on social media quite as much these days, so I'm going to kind of keep that information off for right now. But otherwise, this is me saying to you all, thank you so very much. Uh, I will see you next week. And in the meantime, don't forget to never double your colors for someone else's canvas. All right. Court is now out of session. Clear the courtroom, everybody. We'll see you next week. Be well, be safe, and behave.